the Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network presents The Roots of Reconstruction by Rusas John Rushduni Narrated by Shelby Luke Thank you for joining me this week in the reading of Roots of Reconstruction by Rusus John Rushduni. In lieu of the judgment of God across this nation, I appeal to you to listen, learn, and live as the Holy Spirit guides you in the truth of the Word of God. The words and prompting of fallible men do not hold a candle to the truth of Scripture, and the truth of Scripture will only be words to our ears unless we exhort, establish, and exercise these infallible words in every area of thought and life. Calcine Report number 60, August 1970. Our concern this month is with two supposedly dissimilar subjects, the myth of the silent majority and decapitalization. The two are actually very closely related. The myth of the silent majority is not a new one. It has been widely used for almost two centuries by right, left, and center politicians. The basic feature of this myth is that all our problems are created by a small, evil minority, whereas the majority are good people and are simply misled. All the publicity and press is controlled or filled by news of this evil minority, and the good majority are silent. Who this evil minority is depends on the person propagating this myth. It can be a group of revolutionists, radical students, or a race. It can be capitalist or communist. It can be also a conservative organization or a church. The myth works all the better if some evidence exists that there are some communist or nasty capitalist or any other element which is clearly engaged in subversive activities, rioting, or lawless stands. But the myth is anti-Christian to the core in that it denies the fact of sin. According to the Bible, man's problem is sin, and in every race, class, and group, sin is the central problem. Our problem today is that the vocal minorities and the silent majorities all over the world are rebellious against God and His laws, so that we need to pray from our hearts in the words of the General Confession, quote, We have followed too much the devices and desires of our own hearts. We have offended against the holy laws. We have left undone those things which we ought to have done. And we have done those things we ought not to have done. And there is no health in us. There is neither absolution nor grace in confessing other people's sins. And yet this is the essence of the myth of the silent majority. Our bodies are always exposed to a variety of diseases. We fall prey to them when our general resistance is weak. Similarly, everybody politic has always been exposed to a wide variety of subversions. It never succumbs to them as long as its general health remains. If the infection, the subversive minority, gains a foothold, it is because the body, the silent majority, is weak and unhealthy. With this in mind, let us examine the class structure of society. 
Here, one of the most important studies is by Dr. Edward C. Banfield of Harvard, The Unheavenly City, The Nature and Future of Our Urban Crisis, Boston, Little Brown, 1970. Banfield sees classes as an inescapable aspect of every society, and he divides society into four classes, upper class, middle class, working class, and lower class. The important thing about Banfield's work is the way class status is identified. Quote, The individual's orientation toward the future will be regarded as a function of two factors. One, ability to imagine a future, and two, ability to discipline oneself to sacrifice present for future satisfaction. Unquote. Page 47. As Banfield observes, quote, it must again be strongly emphasized that this use of the term class is different from the ordinary one. As the term is used here, a person who is poor, unschooled, and of low status may be upper class. Indeed, he is upper class if he is psychologically capable of providing for a distant future, unquote. Page 47F. Many men of great wealth are basically lower class. They have no orientation to the future. The upper class has a personal and broadly social future orientation. The middle class is similar, but of more restricted vision. The working class's future orientation is limited to very personal factors, a comfortable home, a new car, or the like. The lower class has no future orientation. He does not plan. Quote, Things happen to him. He does not make them happen. Unquote. Page 53. Outside the lower classes, when poverty occurs, it is, quote, the result of external circumstances, death of the breadwinner, illness, involuntary unemployment, or the like. Unquote. Even when severe, such poverty is not squalid or degrading because standards are maintained. On the other hand, quote, lower class poverty, by contrast, is inwardly caused by psychological inability to provide for the future and all that this inability implies, unquote. Page 126. Let us now analyze the implications of this analysis of class structure. Very obviously, the old monarchies and nobilities fell because they had ceased to be a true upper class and had become lower class in mentality, geared only to the moment and its pleasures. The entrepreneurs who gained the ascendancy in the new society were thus not, quote, middle class, unquote, but a true upper class, men with a future-oriented vision for themselves and society. The United States was settled by men who, however humble their English origins, were upper class by virtue of their vision of the future. Many of the immigrants who arrived were similarly upper class in vision. They left their native lands in terms of a future-oriented vision. The United States, usually cited as the great example of a middle-class culture, probably had, from the colonial period well through much of the 19th century, an upper-class orientation, perhaps unequaled in history. A Christian faith, which is geared to victory and the establishment of a Christian law order, is future-oriented. No other religion has been capable of creating a like progress, because none other has the future orientation of biblical faith. A future-oriented people capitalize a civilization. They work in terms of a goal. 
They forego present pleasures for future gains. Their entire life and activity is geared to capitalization, and the family becomes a major instrument for capitalizing society. Today, however, the mood of modern man can best be described as existentialist. It subscribes to a philosophy in which the, quote, moment, unquote, is decisive. It is not future-oriented in that it does not plan, save, and act with the future in mind. The existentialist demands that future now. Some of the causes which concern student rebels may be valid, but their existentialist demand that the future arrive today makes them incapable of capitalizing and planning. They are instead capable only of decapitalizing a culture. Existentialism requires that a man act undetermined by standards from the past or plans for the future. The biology of the moment must determine man's acts. Very briefly stated, existentialism is basically lower-class living converted into a philosophy. It is moreover the philosophy which governs church, state, school, and society today. The, quote, silent majority, unquote, has perhaps never heard of existentialism, but it has been thoroughly bred into it by the American pragmatic tradition of the, quote, public, unquote, or private schools. Our basic problem today all over the Western world is that Western civilization no longer has a true upper class at the helm. Future-oriented men no longer dominate society politically, economically, religiously, educationally, or in any other way. Instead, dreamers who are basically lower class, who believe that political power can convert today into tomorrow, are in charge. The result is the domination of our politics by an economic policy, which is the essence of the lower class mind, which leads to radical inflation. Spending today with no thought of tomorrow is a lower-class standard, and this is the essence of our modern scene. The vocal minority and the silent majority are both deeply in debt, and they create national economies which are deeply in debt. The growing anarchism of our social life is a product of this same lower-class mentality. This popular anarchism is a refusal to submit to law and discipline, an unwillingness to accept any postponement of hopes and dreams. It is closely related to the tantrum of a child who demands that his will be done now. Every major social agency today, church, state, school, and home, is dedicated to creating this anarchistic, lower-class mentality. The need, thus, is for a new upper class, a segment of society dedicated to a future orientation governed by biblical faith. This means establishing new schools, free Christian schools, new churches, a new society in terms of our own readiness to live in terms of a broadly future-oriented purpose. The, quote, public, unquote, or state schools are shaping a large new lower class, and the universities are finishing schools for this new lower class. The Christian schools are shaping a new upper and a new middle class. The purpose of Chalcedon is to further the thinking and scholarship of a new upper class, of people geared to the future and dedicated to godly reconstruction. To return to Banfield's book, Banfield cites two groups in American history which have had the strongest future orientation, the Puritans and the Jews. 
and both had it as long as their perspective was still colored with the belief that God summons man to work for, quote, the realization of God's plan for the future, unquote. Page 57. Biblical faith has been basic to American progress to future orientation. On the other hand, a characteristic of a decaying social order is that men decline and become more and more lower class in character. The women then provide whatever future orientation the society has. Among American Indians, too commonly, whatever stability a home has is provided by the woman. Among Negroes, the woman again is usually the member of that family who does whatever planning and saving there is. In American society at large, the same fact is increasingly the reality. The woman is provident, plans for the future, is politically, economically, and religiously concerned, whereas the man has a rather lower class absorption with the moment. A society in which men surrender leadership and lack a practical vision of the future is in serious decline. Thus, the new barbarian is not merely in the slums, he is in the schools and universities and business houses and factories, in church and home. In their study of the lonely crowd, 1953, Reisman, Glazer, and Denny showed that man today has become consumption-centered rather than production-centered. The group is now the source of morality and the framework of reference. The emphasis is thus more on morale than on morality. Man is other-directed rather than inner-directed, and the group has taken the place of God as the authority. What these men were describing was simply the development of the lower-class mind, and we are beginning to see the shape of a world dominated by such a mentality. This lower-class mind has been some years in the making. It will take time and effort to shape a new mentality. It is necessary to work. Therefore, while there is still time, the cause is recapitalization and reconstruction. These are frustrating times for any man with a practical future-oriented character. Our world is geared to the present. When Lord Keynes was asked about the long-range consequences of his economic policy, he gave as his answer, quote, In the long run, we are all dead, unquote. This is a classic expression of a lower-class perspective. How, then, can a man plan for the future in a world that insists on living only for the present? How, when our politics, economics, religion, education, and all else expresses a lower-class worldview, can we assert again the priority of God's law and the future? We begin by planning our own lives and assets in terms of the certainty of the collapse of any order that denies law and the future. We establish new institutions, churches, schools, and agencies. There are beginnings of new medical associations, standing in terms of principles. We need new associations of professional men to oppose the present link between humanism, the state, and the professions. There is a need for new insurance companies that will insure doctors who break with the AMA and stand in terms of biblical morality. From where you stand... What can you do? You can join the lower class and eat, drink, and try to be merry, for tomorrow you may die. Or you can plan for yourself, assist others in their planning, 
and work to create again a future-oriented society. If a future-oriented upper-class society is to be established, you will have to do it. The federal government never will. To look to politics for the answer is a mark of the inferior mind. It is time to upgrade ourselves before the judgment of God flunks us out of history. Calcedon Report Number 61, September 1970 The city has a very important and central role in the history of civilization and human progress. We fail to appreciate this nowadays because the Romantics have greatly obscured the role of the city. Some Christians condemn the city because Cain built the first city, Genesis 4.17. They fail to reckon with the fact that Revelation gives us as the goal of God's movement in history and beyond history, a city, the new Jerusalem in which garden or country and city are combined. The city represents a common life. From the earliest days, the function of the city has been to provide men with community, to bring like-minded men together in terms of a common purpose in life. The city served as an expanded family. Men felt, quote, at home, unquote, in their city because it represented a larger family and a closer-knit sense of community. This aspect of the city is now gone. Instead of a sense of belonging, the city gives a sense of isolation. The word, quote, citizenship, unquote, comes from the word, quote, city, unquote. Citizenship was originally membership in the common life and faith of a city. Instead of, quote, citizenship, unquote, Modern man finds instead, quote, alienation, unquote, in the words which eloquently express the fact that modern man is a stranger in the modern city. Not in the jungled city can I find that vagrant tribe my memory pursues. Here are fidelities I did not choose. I sleep with strangers crying for my people. Another important aspect of the city in history has been a common faith. In ancient times, a city always represented a common faith. To be a citizen meant to share in the same religious faith as all other members of the city. The law of the city was derived from that religion as well as all other standards. No one could share in the life of the city if he denied its faith. To do so made him an alien, if not an enemy. This is why it was necessary for the Christian to face persecution once they denied the city's faith. And this is why, when they conquered, the reorganized city or country had to have a religious unity. Every law and standard which binds man to man in state, school, church, commerce, and society is a product of religion. When that common faith is denied, the people of the city become strangers to one another. Next, the city was man's greatest source of material protection. The city provided walls, a watch, and other men as a means of a mutual defense against enemies. From ancient times, men have fled to the city in times of catastrophe as their best and surest defense. A dramatic example of this deeply rooted feeling is the eruption of Mount Pele, a long dormant volcano in 1902. Some time passed after Mount Pele became active again. Rivers of lava flowed daily down the mountainside. Homes and business places were destroyed day after day. 
the cable to the outside world was cut by the shifting of the ocean bed. Finally, when Mount Pelly climaxed its eruptions on May 8, 1902, 8.02 a.m., 30,000 people died. The two survivors were a prisoner sentenced to death and a madman. Why didn't the people leave? As a matter of fact, people fled from farms and villages into the city, although conditions were no better in the city. Professor Roger Bordier of Lassie of St. Pierre summed it up thus in describing the people's attitude, quote, They had a blind faith in the protection of the town, unquote. When the press assured them that all was well, the people were ready to believe the word of the newspaper against the sight of their eyes. Because their faith in the protecting power of the city was so great, it had almost become instinctive with men to believe in the city as protection. The 20th century has rapidly changed that ancient role of the city. Air war has made the city the most vulnerable area and the most practical place to attack. As a result, in World War II, Britain sent many children out of London into the country for their protection. The city, in modern warfare, had ceased to be the place of refuge and had become the most exposed arena of warfare. But this was not all. The new religion of the city, humanism, cannot bind man to man, and as a result the city has become a house increasingly divided against itself. Race and class warfare have become a part of the life of the city. Warfare has thus been introduced into the heart of the metropolis. Urban sprawl is in part due to this fact. Men of the city flee from the city to its borders in order to escape the city's newer citizens and their warfare. Man now feels nowhere less protected than in the city. More and more city dwellers arm themselves with guns, watchdogs, barred windows, and an alarm system. The city has become the battlefield of the 20th century. Pollution has also altered the life of the city. When in the mid-30s this writer had a physical examination at the university, the examining doctor said, quote, You're from the country, unquote. Why? The dust of the farm showed on my lungs whereas city dwellers had cleaner lungs. This, of course, is no longer true. Today, in many areas, it is the city dweller whose lungs show the effects of city life and smog. The city is also being destroyed by modern money. The stability and growth of the city and its economic life depends on good money, hard money, gold, and silver. Modern paper money inflation works harm in every area of life, but especially to the city. Because the life of the city is so intensely dependent upon the flow of sound money. When inflation finally debauks the paper currency or radically adulterates the coinage, the city suffers a massive heart attack, because money is its life blood. Continuing inflation finally helped destroy urban life in the Roman Empire, so that when the city of Rome fell, it was a shadow of its former self. It had ceased to be the place of imperial residence, and its population had declined greatly. When the end of an age witnesses also the breakdown of money, it means also the death of the city. The problem of the city is not, quote, congestion, unquote. This is its advantage. It puts us closer to other men, 
to opportunities, advantages, and instruments of progress. Congestion can mean more stimulating ideas, more possibilities of progress, but only if some kind of community is maintained. A good religion unites people in terms of a common faith and purpose. Good money also unites people in that it makes economic community and progress possible. Remove good religion and good money and the situation moves towards anarchy. The very advantages of the city become its disadvantages. The city is today being destroyed, but the city must be rebuilt if civilization is to continue. The city represents life and community. It represents industry and commerce, progress and achievement. There is no progress without community action, and in the city, community action is giving way to status action, and there is a growing paralysis of the spirit of enterprise. The true life of the city is a continuous rebuilding in terms of a continuously improving perspective on the goals of godly society. It is a life of change because it has goals. Where men believe only in change, all things are equal, and therefore there is no value in change. Chinese philosophy very early accepted the ultimacy of chance and change, and as a result Chinese civilization stagnated. It constantly required outside conquerors to revivify it before they too succumb to its stagnation. Change should be a product of a faith which is discontented with the present and continually reshapes the present in terms of a future-oriented goal. Thus, biblical religion rather than Chinese philosophy has produced progress and advance. It will do so again. Briefly, a good city is an upper-class product. It is future-oriented, and as such, it is a religious, cultural, and economic center. The city represents the free planning of many men of enterprise who chart the future in religion, economics, education, science, and other areas. When the city becomes lower-class oriented, it also becomes entertainment-oriented. Not planning for the future but enjoying the moment becomes all-important. Instead of a concern for the future, people become concerned with the present and with status in a class-structured society governed by an upper class, men are important to the degree that they command the future by their enterprise. In a lower class society, the present is all important, and caste prevails. Lines are hardened in terms of birth and color, because almost all being lower class, men feel threatened by one another. Instead of groupings in terms of degrees of superiority, men seek to maintain their groupings artificially. On some levels, it may mean a social register. On another level, it is neighborhood hostility to an outsider. Thus, the more, quote, equal, unquote, men become because of their present-oriented lower-class inferiority, the more they divide one from another. Then caste lines are resorted to in order to freeze society. Socialistic legislation is used to freeze the economy. The church tightens its laws and works for unity in order to constrict and limit the power of truth. The schools tolerate everything except a Christian upper class future orientation. Then the city, the focal point of progress, becomes the focal point of decay and death. But the power in the word of God cannot be bound. 
God requires change because He requires progress, sanctification, development, and growth. His people are called to be, quote, pilgrims and sojourners, unquote, here, because they are forbidden to absolutize the moment or the present, but must move forward as citizens of that city whose builder and maker is God. The present must be reshaped in terms of the future. The hymn writer Henry F. Light, 1847, in, quote, Abide With Me, unquote, reflected a Greek, not a Christian perspective, when he wrote of, quote, change and decay, unquote, as though they were two things of a kind. Decay must be coupled with death. In this world, change is essential to life and growth, basic to a future-oriented and biblical faith. The lower-class mentality and its cities have a destiny of decay and death. Is that your choice? Thank you for joining me this week in the reading of Roots of Reconstruction by Bruce's John Rushman. Lord willing, we will be reading again next week. Until then, may God bless your endeavors as you serve the one and only King Jesus. It was the blood of Jesus, the perfect sacrifice, the love he had us by his paying the very price. It was there at Calvary's tree, where he died for you and me.
The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows. Or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His kingdom.